This episode is brought to you by the Young Farmer Business Program, an initiative of the New South Wales Department of Primary Industries. To help you get the skills you need for the office, not the paddock, visit youngfarmer.nsw.gov.au. Welcome to the Future Farmer Network podcast, Mentor of the Month. Today, we are lucky enough to be chatting to Isabel Knight. Isabel is a succession planning specialist who has been the owner and the director of Australia's leading farm succession planning business, Proactive, since 2004. Isabel is a mother of three. She has degrees in business law and psychology and is a trained counsellor and mediator. Isabel's association with family farm businesses stems back to her family farm near Juni and now Loombra, New South Wales, where she and husband Rod run a cattle trading enterprise. Isabel, thank you for joining us on Mentor of the Month. Pleasure, Suze. It's lovely to have you with us. Um, we really appreciate your time. So I'm going to jump straight in. Um, very keen to hear about Proactive in a bit more detail. I know you started the business in 2004. Can you tell me a little bit about why you decided to start Proactive and what led you to that point? Uh, I think the starting point really was just observing in our local community just what a challenge succession planning or a lack of it was for people and their businesses. You could see beautiful families with properties and you know, they were really trying to do the right thing, but there wasn't really much of a professional platform to, to support people with the, the um, change management that's associated with it. There's so much to succession planning that's based in human relationships, uh, in understanding change, understanding those dynamics. And there just wasn't anybody really much doing anything in that arena and I thought it was just so sad because it's such a it's such a lost opportunity for agriculture and for our communities when families don't address succession planning because when it is addressed you can see that the older generation there's lots of pluses for the older generation in that they feel good about the legacy that they've left and the results of their years of uh, stewardship and hard work and then the incoming generation just breathe life to businesses and also communities and so that was really motivating to me um, and then in in starting proactive I suppose I, I believed that there needed to be a bespoke business for supporting families who were particularly farming families and I wanted it to be something completely independent because so many people who are involved in succession planning or supporting families have got a kind of another agenda. Either they want the financial planning that's associated with it, the professional fees associated with it. It's, a, it's, it's not truly independent in some arenas. So that was really also a motivation for starting Proactive and just making sure that it was truly about the family's needs above anything else. And so any professional who's involved in the process is, is there for the right reasons. Um, and so right. a lot of, that, yeah, a lot of that's quite covert, you know, people don't realize, um, but you know, for me, that's terribly important. Absolutely. And I know, I mean, at the moment, 
succession planning is maybe a bit of a buzzword. So I'm keen to sort of hear from you what you actually mean when you use the term succession planning. What, what does that encompass and why do you think it's so important for family farms? I think succession planning is actually something that people don't really understand fully. I think that um, in my mind, succession planning is really an integral component of business management. And when it's unaddressed, it set, tends to pull in other aspects of business management, which aren't succession planning in the true definition. Succession is really about business continuity. And when we're talking about family businesses, we're talking about families continuing in their businesses. And so for me, it really is about business planning, succession planning, so that there's training of the next generation as a management succession before there's an ownership succession, ideally. Um, and then it's also about estate planning. So a lot of people think, oh, well, I've got a will written, so I've done succession planning, and that's just not at all. The will is just to say, well, if something happens to me suddenly, this is how my assets are going to be distributed, but what's the point of doing that when people are not preparing to take on the responsibility associated with the privilege of owning those assets? So I really think there's so much more to succession planning. It could take all day to talk about, but that people don't understand how complex it is and just how important that people aspect is and particularly at the front end of a good planning process. Absolutely. And so I suppose the, the people element being so integral to, to that succession planning, it can be, you know, a, a potentially awkward or sensitive topic for families to talk about amongst themselves. So I suppose that bridging that gap from maybe a young person in agriculture thinking about, oh, you know, we need to get going with the succession planning thing to actually then having that conversation with their parents and then coming to you. Do you see that push generally coming from the younger generation? And do you have any advice for young people who are maybe starting to think that it's something they need to do within their family? Uh, I would say that... Um generally the younger people are the ones probably agitating more for the change associated with succession planning. Um, and that's not that the older generation don't acknowledge there's a need. I think it's just that often people who are, you know, the current business owners, for example, feel like they've kind of got to have all the answers before they start a process. And so they don't necessarily understand that the starting point is where you are today and it's the process that supports you through the communication and allows you then to make effective decisions. I think sometimes people are scared that if they come to a business like ours that someone's going to tell them what to do when really what we're doing is enabling communication effectively so that families don't blow themselves up in the first instance so that they can have those difficult conversations because a lot of what we're talking about you can't have around the conversations can't be had around the kitchen table because we're talking about you know what happens if someone dies what happens if someone lives to be very old how are they going to be funded we're talking about how things are going to be for the next generation and sometimes would they if we have those conversations without a facilitated 
opportunity, then it just looks like people are pushing their own agendas and, and, there's, and it can become, people can become very unsafe in that space, in that communication. So, you know, our job is really to keep people very safe as they're having really difficult conversations and being very empathetic to the fact that these people are so courageous to be having those conversations because so many people won't. Absolutely. Um, so you must come across a lot with all of that in mind. You must come a lot across a very wide range of different family business structures and arrangements and, you know, there are potentially people out there thinking, you know, we're too far gone or, you know, we haven't started this soon enough or what, what are some of the most challenging setups for you to deal with and, and what would you say to people maybe who are hesitant because they think that, you know, it's all just all too hard? Well, I feel that succession planning is actually something that people can control unlike the weather and the markets and all those other aspects of agriculture. And if they don't start to address it and get going in a process, then one of these days something will happen which will force their hand and they won't have the control they wish they had. I feel that people need to understand that you need to start the process early. And there's many reasons for that. Um, starting the process early, for example, allows you to make decisions in a less stressful way because the catalyst isn't that something's happened. Um, so it's less stressful. You're being proactive rather than reactive. So the nature of decision making is very different. You'll see also that um, people can give themselves time to achieve outcomes. So sometimes it's completely overwhelming for people because they think, oh my goodness, we've got to fund our next however many years we're going to live. We've got to pay down debt. We've got to buy these new things. We'd like to expand. There's another generation that are going to need to be educated. It just becomes so overwhelming and people need to be able to chunk that down and think about business horizons. And often what I see, people leave it too late. And so when it's left too late, they don't have the options that they would have if they were doing it more proactively with more time available to them. And, you know, businesses can deliver outcomes incrementally over time when you've got a really clear focus. But when people don't have a clear focus too, you see people pulling in different um, ways. And so that you've got one dollar of after-tax money that you might make if you're fortunate to be profitable and people are buying for the use of that dollar and so then that creates argy-bargy and the squeaky wheel wins and the most belligerent often noisiest person in the family wins rather than everyone saying well these are our priorities for the next 10 years we're focused on this the 10 years after that we're focused on that and really chunking it down into horizons so to me, the problem often is that it is, it's too late. And people, older people, you know, we become less decisive as we get older. And so if we leave decision-making till we're a bit too old, we can't process, you know, as well as we did once. We're more risk-averse, we, we're less decisive. And it's just, it just becomes really tough. So that proactive environment is a much, much more productive environment for families to be making these kinds of decisions. And sometimes when they leave it too late, they've got to make all the decisions at once. 
Whereas if you do it as part of a, as part of business management and as a process, you're kind of chunking the decision-making down into pieces rather than everything at once, which is completely overwhelming, if that makes sense, Suze. Yeah, that makes absolute sense. It's um, a very, very logical approach. Um, I suppose thinking about young people specifically in agriculture, knowing that, you know, all of this is well and good if you have you know, say your family has a farm that, that you are looking mm. to do the succession planning around. Um, mm. We know that there are a lot of young people who are interested in agriculture who maybe don't have those family farms to go back to. How, no. how do you think other options, things like adjustment or leasing arrangements, that sort of stuff, does that come into it often um, with your clients and, and are there sort of more creative ways that people can either extend the asset that they might have or um, potentially sort of start down the road of eventually owning one if they don't today? Well, yes, we do see, you know, fortunately for agriculture, there's an enormous amount of young people who are desperately wanting to return or to enter agriculture. And, you know, I see that as incredibly exciting. And not everybody does have the perfect foundation to prov provision for everybody at the outset. So most families have to engage in some creative problem solving around how to, how to do that and to be very clear about what they're looking for. So you can still be in agriculture and enjoy all that agriculture has to offer without owning squillions of acres of land. And we do see people combining um, maybe some other skill sets that they have and offering that into agriculture or even outside of agriculture and using that capital then to, to do something in agriculture. So there's all sorts of amazing businesses. And actually, I think COVID has been terrific for agriculture because I think what it's done is it's actually, so for even in my business, where once I would have said to people, listen, we could do that via Zoom, they would say, oh, no, we couldn't possibly have a good outcome using Zoom or technology or we don't have good internet. Well, what people have done is they've gotten over that hurdle and they've made sure they've got the best internet they can have, even though, yes, it's not as good as it probably should be. Um, but people are now really much more accepting of the fact that there's so much they can do using technology, which allows people to be positioned in an environment that they would choose to be in. And I think that creativity also, Suze, usually comes from the younger generation. And if we don't engage the younger generation in this process early enough, they go off with those ideas somewhere else and we miss out. So I think, you know, there's a lot of reasons why we've got to get them into the conversation early. And their creativity and problem solving I find is extraordinary. You know, we don't have to have the ideas. They usually, once they know what the goals are, the roadmap is, and what everyone needs in a family group, the younger generation usually whip into action and come up with all sorts of ways to get there. So there's so many ways. And I think people shouldn't be blocked by not having a farm. I think wherever there's a will, there's a way. And there's also often people 
who don't have families who are wanting to return, who might offer opportunities to other people who want to be in agriculture. So sometimes it's actually blending those two needs together, which we've seen happen with our clients as well, Suze. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more with COVID sort of, you know, potentially giving people the option to have their cake and eat it in a way, you know, not having to choose between the career that maybe their uni degree sets them up for and and living and working on the farm. It's, it's a lot easier to do both now, which is excellent, yeah. I think. Um, and I suppose for you with Proactive being a business that's based right around regional Australia, I know you have some remote staff and, and did have before COVID. Um, and I mm. also typically spend a lot of time on the road. Um, mm. You know, post-COVID, obviously, that that may have changed, but I'm, I'm just keen to hear about some of the challenges and maybe some perks that you you find running a business in a, in a remote way, given that you've been doing it for, for a while. Well, we have, ever since we started Proactive, it's, it's been kind of a virtual business. We haven't had a the overhead associated with having a, an office. And I've always focused on having the right people in the business. And if the right people happen to be located out at Walgett or, or um, Cunnamulla or Brisbane or Bendigo or Ballarat, I don't mind. It's just so long as we've got the right people, that's what really matters to us. And so we've always just had the attitude that, you know, they can work from home because I trust them, you know, I don't, I don't need to micromanage anybody. They all know what jobs need to be doing done. And so, you know, I've heard recently about people in businesses where the businesses are starting to say, well, we need to put tracking devices in place so people can actually be managed or feel like there's that accountability. And I just think that is shocking because <laughs> if you can't trust the people, well, what are they doing? You know, you don't have people in your business that you don't trust. That's just not how life is. You don't work like that. Um, so for us, it's been a model that's worked really well. We used to do masses of traveling because we would always engage in face-to-face individual interviews and then face-to-face family meetings and we would try to minimize that time away for staff but also for families so they were big days you know if you had family meetings they were really big days well what um this COVID experience has meant now is that a we're doing all that it's a similar process but we're, we're meeting all everybody on zoom individually and if we need to take more time, we just take more time because we used to be on the road. Well, we're not on the road now as much. So let's spend a bit more time with these people. And if we've got to chunk the meetings down into pieces, that's what we're doing. And so um, we're just structuring things a little differently in the way we present it. And um, yeah. I mean, face-to-face in some families is necessary. So where people can, you know, we can be assured that people are safe. Um, So recently we worked with a family from, you know, Western districts and they'd been pretty isolated. We'd been isolated. And so we did face-to-face. It was a wonderful opportunity to do that. Um, And so we're doing that as much as possible, but it's, um, it's within reason and it's definitely with a mind to keeping everybody very safe. Where families are not in conflict, and they're very proactive, this process via Zoom works beautifully 
if there's a bit of conflict and maybe there's a reduction in trust amongst family members, then that's where face-to-face, -face, unfortunately, you know, we need to be that, we need to get in amongst it a little bit more and be face-to-face, Suze. Yeah. I was going to ask about the psychology of it, whether you see a difference in the way people, in how open people are maybe online as opposed to in a face-to-face -face meeting. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's why we need to take more time, Suze, because, um, you know, people can, if they've got a bit of a guard up or they're feeling a bit unsafe, you've kind of got to spend a bit more time getting them into a safe space. But then in some ways they're safe because they're often on their own rather than in the room. Um, but people have got to be very committed to their own accountability, you know, much more in some ways than when they're face to face because there are ground rules. You can't get up and leave the room just because you're not fit, liking what you're hearing. So there's, um, there's some really strict ground rules and we do need to spend time with people to really know what some of the triggers might be for the people involved. And so there is a lot of psychology in doing it well. And I actually think we're managing it because we've done years and years and years of face-to-face. -face. But if you yeah. didn't have that experience in the background, I think it would be much tougher, Suze. Yeah, absolutely. That makes Complete sense. Um, thinking about working remotely with your staff, um, I suppose I'm just keen to, to draw out for young people particularly. I know, I mean, I, I've come across instances myself where this has happened post-COVID, where a young person may have, you know, landed their dream job and had three months working in the office with the team and then COVID hit and they sent home to work remotely and they're deprived of, you know, those professional development opportunities that come from being in an office and working on drafting emails together and, you know, talking to your colleagues about different problems. That's really hard to do, A, when you're starting out in your career and B, when you're home alone. Um, mm. What do you think we can do to sort of overcome those challenges? And you may have examples from, you know, managing your own team of remote staff for such a long time. Well, we have always engaged in remote professional development because of the location of everyone. We have twice a year, we make an enormous effort to make sure we're all together for a few days and we do our business planning every, you know, every six months, we'll have a meeting somewhere so that we do have that touch point. And for some, the facilitators kind of get to see each other, but the admin staff, for example, they don't see anybody. They're just on their own. And and it's good for them to get to know the people. So I do think that where possible, businesses do need to try to have some really um, focused and targeted time together, even if it is like in our case, it's a few days out of a week, twice a year. And the rest of the time, you have to have a very structured communication process. So, you know, um, make sure you have those team meetings Make sure that people who are newer to the business are feeling really supported. And if they need um, some professional development, just get something in place so that they can do that. You know, for our people, we have to have sessions around changes to the law, changes to the Tax Act. Um, we have, we're going to be talking and we have facilitation training sessions, you know, and 
those things are really important. I think people have just got to think about doing that differently and probably a bit more of it. You know, I think people were always expecting because they were in an office together that by osmosis, they would kind of pick things up and learn things. Well, now we have to be much more conscious of that and say, radio, what are we going to structure into this into this business so those people are feeling really supported and worthwhile and also we've always been terribly conscious of mental health because and at times I've had people apply for jobs who you know on paper and and in interview the most amazing people that I would absolutely love to have in the team but sometimes I've had a niggling concern about their ability to manage the, the mental health and our ability to support it appropriately and that would sometimes put me off a little if I thought we couldn't do what was right for the person with that in that regard. So I think we've got to be not paying lip service to mental health, which I think is what goes on too much. We have actually very strict um, clinical supervision sessions that our team have to engage in. So it's not a choice. You don't just wake up in the morning and decide, well, I'm okay, I don't need it it's mandated, you know, it's like whether you like it or not, buddy, you're in there to have a, a session because, you know, we all need it. Our mental health, sometimes when things are going spiralling, we're not aware of it as quickly as, say, some others are around us are. And even, even you know, I we, we're remotely and we can pick up, we'll ring up and say, you know, is some, do you think so-and-so is a bit flat or do you think they're okay? Or someone will say, well, would you give them a ring and just see, I've just got a sense of that. So I think we've got to be kind in that way, Susan. I think in workplaces we've been bullying and treading on each other's faces and we just haven't been kind enough. And I think kindness is actually what we have to focus on instead of some of these other buzzwords. And if we're kind, then A, we'll develop people professionally, we'll do the networking we require, even with the constraints we have, and we'll look after the mental health of the people who matter, who are our teammates. Absolutely, I like that. I think kindness could be a new formal KPI, potentially, to be implemented. I think so. Suze, I, I think, you know, everything stems from kindness. Empathy, compassion, kindness. If we've got those three words above all else, and then we've got the capacity to do a good job. Well, we will, and we'll we'll work as a really lovely team. I'm proud of our team because we're very connected and we're very um, considerate and respectful of each other because we we lead with kindness and we try to actually give that to our family clients as well. Absolutely. So what's What's the, before we just turn away from proactive, I just wanted to ask what, if there was one thing that you wish you'd known before you took the leap and, and started the business? Oh, Suze, I think it would be, from myself personally, don't try to do everything yesterday. Be patient and know that perseverance and kindness will prevail. I think, you know, as a young person, I was, I thought I could do everything yesterday. I was so impatient. And um, that impatience leads to frustration, leads to thinking, oh, this is never going to be enough. In, in fact, if I'd just been a bit kinder and calmer to myself, <laughs> I think it would have been a bit easier in those early days when things were quite a slog. Yeah, absolutely. 
It's a good, good yeah. message, I think. And so separately to Proactive, you and your husband, Rod, run a cattle trading enterprise. Can you tell me a little bit about that and how you balance the two roles? Um, well, Rod and I years ago, uh, probably when our children were the age of your little Sid and a little bit older, but preschool, um, we were pretty clear that we didn't really have the scale in our enterprise to meet all of our financial goals, which were to um, educate our children as well as we possibly could, um, expand our business, you know, live in an environment we wanted to live in. It, it was evident that we had to change some things. So we decided back then that we needed to be located somewhere where I could work more easily, um, somewhere where we had some choices around education in case we couldn't afford, say, boarding school all the way through. And we needed to actually be able to uh, expand our enterprise. So rather than all our capital in land, we had to have some capital available for enterprise. So in our case, it was animals. And so we built an enterprise that runs on some own land that we own, but we have always had animals on land other people have owned. And we adjust and we did lease a place. We leased a place for five years. Um, but we've adjusted most of the time. And that's allowed us to have an enterprise that has scale enough to provide the income that we need to do the things we want to do. Um, so we've had to we've had to think a bit differently about it because we didn't have, you know, as much land as probably we would have needed to do what we've managed to do. Um, and juggling that certainly, Sue's in the early days of Proactive, uh, Rod was also starting KLR Marketing, and we were running this business, and so it was a juggle. And I'd say we probably. A lot of people say, oh, how do you balance, you know, the work-life stuff? And I'd say for probably 15 years, we didn't. You know, when kids are little, you're just sleep-deprived, you're trying to do everything, stretched very thin. It's just such a, it's a manic time of life. And, it, and I think that it's like a jigsaw, like a seesaw, you know. Sometimes one ends up and the other ends down and the other ends up and the other ends down. It's, a, it's never a balance. Um, so, you know, I don't think that I'm an expert in balancing, but, it, but I would say it was certainly a juggle. But we, I think what helped us, we were both on the same page and we were very clear about what we wanted to achieve and we were very supportive of each other in each other's endeavours. So as I started Proactive and grew Proactive and kept going with that, Rod's been right behind me every second of the way you know every step of the journey he's been there so I think that's been enormous for us is having each other's backs as we've sort of made our way through that journey absolutely that support um, is invaluable I can imagine and mm -hmm. something that I mean given the, the name of this podcast mentor of the month support career support and and advice and backup like that is definitely something um, that we value and and so I'm keen to know, thinking about mentors specifically, what your experience has been there. Did you ever have one sort of informally or formally? And, and do you act as one for anyone at the moment? Well, 
When we started Proactive, we did engage Dr. Don Jonovic and Dick Whitman, who were specialists in America in this area. And they were people that we really admired. They'd been in the trenches doing the work for a long time. Dick had run his own, and still does, runs his own family, multi-generational family business. So we did engage them as mentors absolutely when we started this business. And we went to America and spent time over there with families who were going through processes and also with professionals who were taking families through processes. So, And we visited a lot of universities who were uh, adding succession planning to their education and training programs. The TPAP program at Texas A&M, all sorts of, we went to Cleveland University, all sorts of places, um, Purdue, Try, sort of get, bring, getting that background to bring back to Australia in a different way. So yes, those men definitely mentored us as we started. And I'll tell you too, there was a, I started Proactive with Sarah Roach. She was Sarah Reynolds then. And she is nine years younger than me. So when we started out, that seemed significant age difference because at that stage she wasn't married, didn't have a family. Um, I was married, had a family, our own business, very different stage of life. And I would say Sarah was a fabulous mentor for me because she had this can-do, come on, is just get on with it, we can do it kind of attitude. And I think sometimes we always think to look at to older people to mentor us, but I think sometimes we need that young blood also and that enthusiasm and can-do attitude to help us too. And I lean on pe younger people in my team enormously because they just energise me and they get excited and I think, oh, yeah, well, this is exciting. Yeah, yeah, this is great. right? <laughs> and I think that's really good for us too. Um, so, yes, I've been fortunate. And, you know, lots of people in families, Suze, you know, old and young, have been, they, don't, they probably don't even realise it, but they've taught me so much. You know, we see people in businesses you know, they're successful businesses that do succession planning. They're not disasters. And so we see amazing things that people have done and are doing, and that also adds to us. So, you know, while we're giving, so our family's giving in that way. Absolutely. Um, so, and, and as far as mentoring, I suppose I like to mentor or try to support people in my team particularly. Um, outside of that, I don't probably do too much, um, but inside the team, I certainly try to be as supportive as possible in whatever arena I can add some value to them. Absolutely. I think that sort of informal mentoring that happens on the job, whether it's within, you know, your own team or, or from your clients or, or the work you're actually out there doing is, is potentially mm. underrated at times. Um, mm. Look, Isabel, I'm going to let you go, but before I do, I just would like to ask one final question, which is, um, could you tell me in hindsight what would be the one piece of advice that you would like to give your 20-year-old self? Um, the one piece of advice I'd give my 20-year-old self really would be to chunk things down and not get overwhelmed. I was a classic for getting completely overwhelmed and I'd, you know, burn out. And 
and I see that a lot in people, young people particularly, who are just trying to do so much. So I think I would just keep it simple, chunk it down, do one thing at a time, but always be focused on, on what you're heading toward. I think I didn't understand that well enough when I was younger. And I look back on that now and think, hmm, if I knew then what I know now, <laughs> I would just chill out a bit and take and smell the roses along the way a little more than I did when I was a 20 year old because I was so ambitious. It's very, very sage advice, I think. Isabel, thank you so much for your time and for joining us on the Mentor of the Month podcast. We, we have loved having you. Thank you, Suze. It's been lovely to talk to you. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out Propagate by the Young Farmer Business Program. Recorded in locations across New South Wales, it explores the business of primary production and the people who make it happen.